the higher the BMI, the more inflammatory the system tends to be. So um, we, we really know that if a person is, uh, has a higher BMI, that they're gonna be in a state of inflammation. The one positive to that is that any move toward weight loss, it doesn't have to be the amount of weight lost but the fact that they're in a state of weight loss, no matter how slow it is, they can reverse that process. When we make someone feel better because we changed their diet, then they feel like moving. You're listening to the Pain Matters Podcast, presented by the American Academy of Pain Medicine, the nation's leading podcast for healthcare providers, focused on providing the best care today, tomorrow, and beyond. Each episode, we'll share the latest innovations and practical applications that directly impact how we care for patients and measure success in multidisciplinary care. Let's get started. Hey, everyone. Happy New Year and welcome back to Pain Matters. I'm your host, Dr. Shravni Durbakula, anesthesiologist and pain physician at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. And I'm Dr. Mustafa Brochwala from the Johns Hopkins PM&R department, and I'll be your co-host for the day. We've all heard the phrase, you are what you eat. Today, we're excited to chat with Dr. Katie Holton about diet and the fascinating ways in which it can impact pain processing. This is an important episode because with some simple changes, our patients can change pain processing, decrease the amount of pain that they suffer from, and improve their quality of life. Dr. Holton is an associate professor in the Department of Health Studies and Neuroscience at American University. And her work focuses on the interaction between diet and chronic pain. This is going to be a two-part episode. There's a plethora of important information that Dr. Holton will be sharing with us. So make sure you tune back in for part two. So to begin, Dr. Holton, what inspired you to look into this relationship in the first place? That's actually quite a long story. Um, But to give it to you in a nutshell, um, when I was starting my graduate program, Um, I was getting my PhD in nutritional sciences, and um, I had planned, like most people in nutrition, to work with something that had to do with the body, for example, type 2 diabetes, obesity type research. And I had a friend who was a young mother at the time who all of a sudden got very sick. She had been an extremely healthy individual. And all of a sudden, she her health deteriorated. She went from working out daily and eating what appeared to be a really healthy diet to being in chronic pain, having severe fatigue, having cognitive dysfunction. For example, she could no longer remember her own phone number. She was having lapses where she could not move. She felt like she was so fatigued. She had to lay down. She was unable to care for her kids. Uh, She was having weird things like balance issues and weird sleep things happening as well. The cognitive dysfunction was really scaring her, but the pain was also very odd, widespread, uh, very unusual for her. And so I watched this deterioration happen and it really piqued my interest as a person going into graduate school. I was thinking, what's going on? What is this? Um, she went to a neurologist, uh, felt like it was neurologically based. And the neurologist at first told her that it was probably MS or a brain tumor, which you can imagine is very scary. So a lot of testing was done. And then she was told that they couldn't find anything wrong with her. It must all be in her head. And um, so, you know, this is something we, we hear commonly from chronic widespread pain patients. And uh, she was really dismayed. 
So because I was jumping into this research field, I decided to start just Googling, like what's going on? How are all these symptoms connected that they're coming on together in this manner in this young individual who is so healthy? And so, you know, of course, I the, the common things came up, fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue syndrome, and Gulf War illness were the things popping up that had this spectrum of symptoms. And so um, I, you know, I, I mentioned this to her. She went back to her doctor and said, what about these things? The doctor said, those aren't real. Those, those, you, you shouldn't even think about those. Those aren't a real thing. There's no way one thing is causing all of your symptoms. And so again, she's dismayed and very sick and non-functional. And so I go back and I start going, well, is there anything that these people have in common, any exposure that they have in common? And I found these people online that were talking about MSG and aspartame that what they had those symptoms and MSG and aspartame seemed to be causing them. So of course, here I am getting a, my graduate degree in nutritional sciences. We learn nothing about food additives. So it's not like this is part of our training anyway. And so I started going, well, what would MSG and aspartame have in common? And so let me, let me break these compounds down and start studying them. So MSG is monosodium glutamate. So it's glutamate attached to one sodium molecule. Aspartame is a dipeptide, a phenylalanine, and aspartate. And it just so happened that aspartate and glutamate have a lot in common. There are two negatively charged amino acids in the diet, and they both function as neurotransmitters. So I started going down this road. Okay, aspartate and glutamate have this in common. Is there any possible way they could be affecting the neurological system? And so I started studying their function. And um, what I found was that there was really great biological plausibility for how these two things could be leading to neurological symptoms in general. So I said, okay, well, let me, let me find out where all these are found. So I started digging, basically created a low glutamate diet found out all of these places, took months basically for me to, to figure out where these were found in the diet. And I had my friend try it because she had no hope. She was, the doctor was basically dismissing her. So she, she tries it and within a month, her symptoms completely went away. And so I, at that moment said, this is what I'm going to do. This is my research career. I have to figure out what's going on here because this is just amazing that these small things in the diet could lead to this broad spectrum of symptoms and make someone so ill and that there was no hope for this person otherwise. So um, so that's basically the story of how it started. And um, I've been fascinated by chronic pain ever since, especially chronic pain conditions where we have these other symptoms. Now, this friend of mine did not have any psychiatric symptoms, but as you guys know, psychiatric symptoms are really commonly comorbid with pain conditions. And now in my research to date, I see all of these symptoms get better, which is just fascinating. So that's my long story of how that got started. I love that. I mean, I find it really compelling that you had this personal experience that then propelled the rest of your research and inspired this entire and amazing career that you have. This story is telling on so many levels. First of all, you know, Marion Webster's uh, term of the year this year is gaslighting. This is really a story of, it sounds like medical gaslighting where a patient was told, Hey, this is fake. This is all in your head. These conditions don't exist. 
And here you find that adding something to, or, or removing something from a diet can be all it takes in order to address some of these symptoms. And it really speaks to the fact that we need to have a better understanding of this and not just, we need to understand it better, but that information from research, like the work you're doing has to be disseminated. And that has to be disseminated, not just to physicians, but even to patients. I want to get into a little bit about your work investigating glutamate, as I know that's some of the work that you have um, really made, made a mark in. So remind us what glutamate is, how it works in relationship to pain processing. Sure. Um, like I mentioned, glutamate um, in the nutrition community is known as an amino acid in the diet, right? Um, but in the nervous system, it is the most ubiquitous excitatory neurotransmitter in our nervous system. It is extremely powerful and very, very important for optimal functioning of our nervous system. So we want glutamate to be there. As a matter of fact, if we try to stop glutamate and block its function with a medication, we end up causing other issues like full-blown psychosis, because we need glutamate in order for our nervous system to function. So glutamate, basically with pain processing, glutamate has the ability to excite other neurons. That's its job. And when it's released, it's excitatory and will excite that next neuron in line. But it also has the ability to basically amp up the nervous system to basically enhance a pain signal, uh, to tell the system, we need to turn this up. This is important. We need to pay attention to it. Uh, glutamate also has a major role in memory formation. Um, and so we, we have a term called long-term potentiation for memory formation. And this is that same idea of this ramping up process that's important for long-term memory formation. Um, with pain, though, it can kind of go too far where we can ramp up the system so much that we have this over-excitation that's occurring, which has been termed central sensitization. And so you, know, you, you kind of touched on this a little bit earlier, um, specific conditions like fibromyalgia. Are there any other pain-related states that you are very familiar with, or there's uh, a great amount of literature regarding uh, a low glutamate diet and pain? Yeah. I mean, I think this is especially a good question because you talk about central sensitization. And so central sensitization, we know that that can be relevant in fibromyalgia, nonspecific low back pain. It really is a chief complaint in many situations. Yeah, my, my work is really focused on widespread chronic pain conditions that have those other symptoms like fibromyalgia. Right now, I've, I've been doing a lot of work in Gulf War illness, which basically has the same symptom profile as fibromyalgia. The main differential there is that they had major neurotoxic exposures in the Gulf War um, that were a precipitating factor, which was different. Um, but um, as far as other people doing work, there is some work being done with uh, TMJ, um, tempomandibular joint disorder. Um, but other, and migraine would be another great one. Uh, <laughs> migraine is very, very responsive to the low glutamate diet that I created. Um, and so I'm actually hoping to do some migraine specific work because most of the patients I work with have migraine as part of their spectrum of symptoms and we see it go away. But I have yet to do a study where I'm just focusing solely on migraine to really get that message out there of how responsive it is. Um, but those would be the main ones. Yeah. Interesting. And when you talk about TMJ migraine, these can be examples of nosoplastic pain states. So again, you know, central sensitization, it all kind of comes through here. So what common foods is glutamate hidden in and what are you advising patients to 
change or, you know, do with their diet? So um, glutamate can be hidden in a bunch of foods. So the reason glutamate is used as a food additive is basically because of its function as an excitatory neurotransmitter. We have taste receptors on our tongue that are part of our nervous system, and we can excite those taste receptors. And so glutamate has the ability to um, actually enhance the flavor of food, and it has been coined its own flavor of umami. Um, if you've heard that term before. So um, glutamate can be found naturally in a few foods. To give you some examples, um, tomatoes, mushrooms, seaweed, um, things like soy sauce are naturally high in uh, free glutamate. So soy sauce doesn't have to have glutamate added to it. It is naturally a very high source. Another example would be aged cheeses. So these natural sources have to be um, avoided in the diet. But the main exposure, especially in the U.S., is to free glutamate that's added as a food additive. The hard part is it can be hidden under a bunch of names. For example, um, I don't have to put monosodium glutamate in anything. I can hydrolyze a protein. When I hydrolyze a protein, I break apart its amino acids. So I have free glutamate at that point. It has flavor enhancing properties. I can add that to a food and that would enhance the flavor. So um, that's probably the hardest part of uh, what I do is that I have to teach people about where all these hidden sources are. But if I was going to talk to your audience and say, what's like a, a general rule of thumb that would help them avoid these from a food additive perspective, I have three rules of thumb I give people. One, they should start, well, first and foremost, make sure they're reading the ingredient label on everything that they eat. So a lot of people will look at that nutrient label, but they don't really read the ingredients. When you read the ingredients, they need three things. The list should be very short. If you pick up a product and there's a long list of ingredients, just put it back on the shelf because most of the time it's not safe. It should be easy to read. There should not be chemical sounding names in the things that you're eating. It should be very simple. And the third thing is it should only contain ingredients that you can add to a food when you're cooking. And a great example of this is this innocuous sounding term, natural flavor. They can hide free glutamate under natural flavor because it comes from a natural source. I can take any protein, hydrolyze it, and pull out that glutamate. Because it came from a natural source, I can call it natural flavor. That one, it doesn't always mean there's glutamate in a product, but that one's really tricky and it doesn't sound very dangerous. So I tell people, you know, can you, when you're cooking, do you pull natural flavor off the shelf and add it to your food? And people will laugh and they go, no, because I don't know what that is, right? And so it really helps them. If you can add a food, an ingredient to a food when you're cooking, it's usually safer. So that that's one way to think about it. So this is really funny because when I go on a diet, right, like I know exactly or, or how much is, fat is recommended to eat, how much protein is recommended to eat. Now, when it comes to glutamate and all of the different ingredients, like you said, that it's sort of hidden under, is there any way to go about measuring that? Or is it really kind of just as simple as you had alluded to where it's like, hey, just avoid these ingredients? Um, are you are you asking about measuring it in the diet or measuring it inside a human? Measuring it in a diet. 
Okay. Yeah. So it's very difficult because when we do have food analysis done, it would have to be done to a specific food. We can get a glutamate content from something, but we have two types of glutamate. We have bound glutamate, which would be bound inside of a protein, which does not appear to cause problems to anyone. And then we have free glutamate, which is that added glutamate for the flavor. So we really have to be able to distinguish those two things. And we've only had a few studies that have really looked at free glutamate content in foods, and we don't yet have a database. I actually have a study going on right now um, with an analytic chemist. We're actually analyzing some foods to try to get some better data on free glutamate levels in foods. Um, right now, the, the food industry, the glutamate industry has put something out there on the internet but that was not peer reviewed. We don't actually know what methods they used. And now we have people, their point of doing it, I should say, is really to say glutamate safe. Look, glutamate naturally occurs in these foods, so it can't cause a problem. But that's not necessarily true. In this subset of people, it does cause a problem and it is beneficial to avoid it. So um, yeah, so it's not easy. I don't think it's something that you need to measure. Really, you get some of these major foods out of the diet that contain free glutamate, people feel better. So um, it's, it's really going back to that whole food diet approach, less processed food, going back to the basics. Yeah, it's funny that you say that. Uh, makes me think of vacationing in Europe where I eat all the time and everything like all the cheese, all the bread, all the stuff that we're taught, you know, to be careful about yet. You come back feeling healthier. My skin looks better. I typically have lost weight and it seems not to make any sense, but it probably just comes back to that idea of not adding things that you wouldn't cook with. So not eating processed food. So even if the ingredients seem to be high in fat or whatever, if they're not processed foods, then that makes a, makes a difference. There aren't all these hidden chemicals, potentially glutamate, potentially other things, you know, um, in there. And actually, even when I go to India, you know, I feel the same way. I find that my skin gets better. I, in general, I feel better. Um, so it's, it's just so fascinating to hear you talk about that. I know that you mentioned before that people can have profound mood effects with certain nutrients, ingredients, lack of certain nutrients, um, we know there's this bi-directional relationship between mood and pain. So let's talk about glutamate in relationship to mood. Is there an effect on mood? Oh, most definitely. Um, we actually just published a paper um, looking at the psychiatric effects in our last Gulf War illness study. Um, I can tell you just with some of these veterans, it has been quite profound to see the change in their mood. Um, so we've seen effects on depression, anxiety, PTSD. And one thing we haven't done a formal measure of, but we are doing in our next study is irritability. So we had veterans who, when they, before they went on the diet, they were irritable all the time, sometimes had uh, been divorced or estranged from family members because of that irritability. They, that got better, went away on the diet. When we challenged them with glutamate, we see a return in that as compared to placebo, where we see no return. We had people get so irritable when we were challenging them with glutamate that they were like, I'm going to go put myself in the hotel room and not come out because I'm scared I'm going to do something mean to someone. They're, they're just so irritable. So um, yeah, we've seen effects across the board. The PTSD effects, I was not expecting um, just because, you know, those are trigger related. I, I really didn't think we'd see an effect and it was, it was profound. The decrease in PTSD uh, was quite amazing for a lot of our subjects. 
sort of switching gears a little bit from glutamate specifically, um, you hear a lot of uh, about the ketogenic diet. And specifically, there is literature that shows that a ketogenic diet can have an impact on the CNS. Uh, for instance, in particular, you hear that a lot in patients with seizures. Um, of course, chronic pain involves the brain and spinal cord. So what's the role for the keto diet or ketogenic diet in chronic pain? Yeah. So the ketogenic diets, um, uh, I'll talk a little bit about mechanism and, but we should also say the ketogenic diets harder. Uh, so something to keep in mind, um, it is effective. Um, well, I don't know how much it's, it's, it's actually probably in its infancy from a pain perspective, but I can tell you that it, the work in epilepsy actually, um, epilepsy is also driven by glutamate. So I can speak to that a little bit. So I can tell you one thing that ketogenic diet does is basically puts our body in starvation mode from a glucose perspective. Now, this is going to be a little bit complicated answer, but as you guys know, glucose feeds into the TCA cycle. And so glutamate is that driver of energy production of ATP production inside our cells. And of course, our brain needs to produce a lot of ATP as well. And if you think about a seizure, you're talking about this very energetic uh, activity of the brain. So it uses a lot of ATP. So the ketogenic diet basically takes glucose out of the picture. And when that happens, the body has to, to switch gears and produce ketones. And ketones actually are, they're kind of like little fatty acids, if you will. They're multiple acetyl-CoA's that are put together, and they can actually travel into the brain and then be broken apart into acetyl-CoA that feeds into that TCA cycle. And so energy can still be produced. But the brain in that situation is only wanting to use it for production of ATP for necessary function. Now, the key piece that ties to glutamate here is part of that TCA cycle is the production of alpha-ketoglutarate. If you have lots of energy production in the brain, like lots of glucose going into there, what you get a lot of alpha-ketoglutarate that gets produced. And the alpha-ketoglutarate can be converted into glutamate. And that's how glutamate gets produced in the brain if you don't eat it, is through this cycle. What happens on the ketogenic diet is you actually reverse that process. You make the brain want to pull glutamate and convert it to alpha-ketoglutarate to help with that ATP production. So you lower glutamate levels as you are working on that energy production. And so, yes, it should be effective for anybody who's sensitive to glutamate should be benefited by that reversal of that process. Now, the, the downside to the ketogenic diet is, you know, it is very, very high in fat and very um, non-palatable. A lot of people are using the term ketogenic diet for something that's not truly ketogenic diet, if you see out there like colloquially, but um, when it's used like for epilepsy, we're talking about an extremely high fat diet that's very difficult for people to follow and not ideal from a dietary perspective, meaning it, you are deficient in many nutrients when you do the ketogenic diet. So that's the downside to that. I, I just want to ask you one follow-up question because you mentioned it yourself where patients uh, colloquially don't uh, actually think about what a ketogenic diet is and ketosis itself. Um, more so it's kind of that low carb, high fat type diet. Is there any utility at all for that? Because of course, that's a much more accessible and easy diet to follow rather than the very strict ketogenic diet. 
Yes. So I think that there's definitely utility to it. And any patient that is needing weight loss, there's a great um, argument to be made for cutting out carbohydrates in the diet. Um, We eat a lot of simple sugar in the US. So that's an easy thing to first cut out. But we have a lot of people who eat a ton of things that are very processed wheat products. So this is your processed cereals, your bread, your pasta, pizza. So um, when people cut out a lot of that carbohydrate, and this is a lot of times gluten containing carbohydrate, that's the bulk of that diet, they tend to find that weight loss is easier. And so it's lowering that carbohydrate because any excess carbohydrate you eat can be converted into fat for storage. So, so yes, it does make a difference in that way. Um, and it also is, is not really a nutrient dense part of the diet. So there's no harm in cutting those processed white bread type foods out of the diet. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, along those lines, so we're talking a lot about things to cut out from the diet, but what foods and nutrients may be beneficial for pain and is there literature surrounding this? What's the pathophysiology? What should we be encouraging really for our pain patients? Keep an eye out for our next episode with Dr. Holton, in which we answer this question and also discuss clinical pearls, the practicalities of healthy eating, and more. Yep. See you next time. Thanks for listening to the Pain Matters Podcast. If there's anything we mentioned in today's show you missed, don't worry. We take the notes for you at painmed.org slash podcast. If you're not already a subscriber, please consider pressing the subscribe button on your podcast player so you never miss a future episode. And don't forget to leave us a rating and review to help us reach and educate even more of our peers in pain medicine.